well, I have a, a task at this time that I really can't say I've been looking forward to giving it, but I sense the Lord laying it on my heart. Many years ago, when I first started ministry, I came across a Bible reading program that, that I have been fortunate enough by the help of the Holy Spirit to stick to a Bible reading program on a day-by-day -day basis. And out of that program, I've, I've learned about the scriptures and, and some of the stuff that's helped me and understand the placement of the different books and the times and all that has been very helpful to me. But my, um, my reason for teaching tonight what I'm teaching is because I found in my Bible reading program things that I hadn't really been taught. Some of them are slightly wrong, not really an error. It's just they weren't full enough to be called complete and true. I found some of them, a dear brother introduced me to some of them in the when I was about 30 years of age and changed my life, and we'll talk about that a bit. But I guess I, I realized that there's a number of things in Scripture that, that we as, I'm going to call us all evangelical churches, are maybe guilty of uh, pointing our fingers at the more liberal churches out there. It's easy to do, isn't it? Just pick out their faults, but I begin to realize we have traditions or lack of doctrines that I think are very crucial to the church today. They always have been for the last 2,000 years. And so I wanted to call this, Who Changed the Church? Because in the beginning, 2,000 years ago, it was a balanced church. The, the early apostles that spent three, three and a half, whatever, years with Jesus, established churches, and they were balanced. And they wrote enough to us in those next few years to give us an understanding of what the church should look like now. But over the years, we have slowly eroded some things and added some things other places. And we come to that place where we're so used to where we are and what we believe that we actually could read a scripture that disagrees with it, but we don't see it. I remember hearing a pastor back a few years ago saying that he refused to believe something because he didn't think it was right. And yet he would read through a scripture in 1 Corinthians where it said it was supposed to be happening, but he said, I never saw it before. And so I think many of us could be at that place. There's things that, that my parents taught me. They used to read the Bible to me, and I was raised in a Bible-believing church, which I'm very thankful for. But you see, there were things that, that my mom and dad read to me in Scripture, and yet they never clicked with me that our church wasn't teaching that or our church wasn't doing that. And so I'm in my 30s now. We're running a ministry, and it's, it's going well, but the Lord is starting to show me some things that we're missing. And we need to get back on track because... 
if we have absentee doctrines or compromised doctrines or watered-down doctrines, we have to expect the Lord's anointing to be withdrawn. And so that's where I'm going at this time. Who changed the church? I don't have an answer to that as far as the who is. But I want to be part of, of, of hopefully a large army of leaders and people that would say we're changing it back to what it was in the early years. I am not interested in talking about the governmental structure of the church. That's not where we're going tonight. So you can relax in that in case you're getting nervous. In the early years of our ministry, we tried to find the exact government the way it was running. And uh, as one guy said, we found the perfect government for government for our church 29 times. And that's about it, you see. It's just not laid out there. The key is ask the Holy Spirit to start giving you instructions on in how to set up each fellowship. And I believe he will give you answers because the Bible says he will speak to us. So who changed the church? I'm going to spend quite a bit of time on the things that seem to be absent from the church. The one main one, as far as I can see after a, over 40 years of ministry, the main one that I hear and see when people come to us and we're, a, we're not a church, we're a ministry that's dealt a lot with, with um, people who came to us for advice. I'm not a certified counselor, but we did a lot of working with people that came to us for help and so on. And I begin to understand there's big holes of understanding, even though they may have been part of a good church for a number of years. And one of the holes, one of the things they didn't understand was the area of repentance. And for most of these things that I'm going to be talking about, I have already spent time teaching on them individually, which you can find probably through our website, Jacobsville Ministries, incorporated.ca. JWMI, if you want to, at CA, which is Canada, if you want to do a short form. But you can find some of them in there. We're getting all of them into Internet in the near future. Let me talk about repentance. It seems to have been downgraded in many churches for various reasons. Some people teach that once you've repented at, at, at conversion time, that's it for the rest of your life. I heard somebody say not too long ago that, that they, do, they have a counseling ministry and a healing ministry, they call it, and they don't believe in repentance because she said it helps to leave the people um, uh, oppressed or discouraged. And I guess that's kind of interesting because in Hebrews, it talks about repentance. Jesus preached repentance. So did John the Baptist preach repentance. They were preaching to the Jewish people, which was the church at that time, if I may. It wasn't called a church, but they were God's people at that time, up until Pentecost. And so, if you're questioning whether Christians have to repent, again, when they see an ex 
are told by the Holy Spirit there's something wrong. We need to remember Revelations chapter 2 and chapter 3 where Jesus is speaking to John and the other Patmos and he's talking to each one of those seven churches. Two of the churches were doing quite well, but listen, there was five other churches that Jesus pointed out what they were doing wrong and what's his answer to it. He says, repent or you may have your name removed from the book of life. Repent, he says, each time. There's no hesitation of Jesus when he was talking to John about these Christians who have probably been Christians for many years that need to repent. And we have experienced our ministry that repentance brings a, a release. If there's something that's happened back 10 minutes ago or 10 years ago, it's, re, it's forgiving that person, yes. But if I had wrong in it, if I um, either did the wrong initially or I responded the wrong way, did something wrong, I need to repent. And it says, you know, if you... if to the people that said it brings oppression or discouragement. Listen to what Acts 3, verse 19 says. This is Peter when they were on trial for healing the man at the temple. He said, listen, he said, the scriptures say, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Or you say, well, isn't he talking to people that have never been Christians? Yes, possibly. But the fact that Jesus said in the book of Revelation that Christians are to be repenting, it for them as well can be a time of refreshing. I know that from experience. I know that from seeing hundreds of people come to the Lord and deal with stuff that is wrong in their life that the Holy Spirit would nail as a sin and as they deal with that stuff, there is times of refresh. I've seen people break into joy because they're free. I've seen their countenance change because of repentance, getting rid of it. When a load of sin is lifted from your life, it brings joy. And listen, one of the things in the Christian church I'm very aware of is a lack of joy among Christian people. A lack of joy. The kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, then joy. Righteousness is when we've had all our sins dealt with through repentance. I have a right standing before God and before man. That's what righteousness means. I have all been forgiven before God. I've been forgiven by God because of what it did to people. That's righteousness. As a result of that righteousness, there's peace that settles in. And when you have peace in your heart, there's an overflow of joy. I grew up in a, an atmosphere where it was wrong to be happy in church. At least that's the way I interpreted it. Even though it was a good church, there was still an attitude, kind of a holiness thing that if you're happy, you're not holy. I've rejected all that. I trust you have. 
The second thing that's not dealt with properly in many evangelical churches is water baptism. I'm speaking to the evangelical churches, including Pentecostal, Charismatic, all the um, full gospel, it doesn't matter. But I'm speaking to all of us, people that believe in the born-again experience. I'm not pointing fingers outside at the churches I don't have connection with. I'm talking to the ones that I relate to. Water baptism, in many cases, this isn't true of all cases, in many cases has been downgraded to simply being a testimony that I'm going to serve the Lord from now on. And then some churches have upgraded it a little bit, said, well, yeah, it's your former way of life is done now, and you have a new life now. In the New Testament, through the book of Acts, you decided to become a Christian, and you repented of your sin as John the Baptist taught and Jesus taught, and they baptized you quickly, and I'll tell you why. Because water baptism, it says in 1 Peter, is what saves you. Now, you might say, hold it just a minute. It's the blood of Jesus that saves us. Yes, it is. But it's the water baptism that separates us from our old way of life. It says there that Noah, the water he went through, represents the separation of our water from an old way of life. Now, if you read Romans 6, the first 10, 12 verses, you have to understand that Paul is trying to say, when you are water baptized, you're burying the old man because just before that, at some point, you made a decision, I don't want to live for myself anymore. The old person that used to live for himself, the selfishness, the greed, everything he represented, I'm dying to that. I'm dead to everything. I want to live for Christ now. And to prove that, I'm going to take that old nature and bury it in water baptism. That's why in the early church, they did it right away. Why? Because that person needed to be separated. In 1 Corinthians 10, it was Moses who separated the children of Israel from their enemies by going through the sea. And when the sea came in, it separated Israel from its old way of life. Hallelujah. Some of you need to understand that. There is water baptism teaching somewhere in, in the archives there. Please go to it. I've spent a lot more time on it. I even teach how you can use it to fight thoughts from the enemy and feelings that he pours into us. But we are a people that are called to die to self, die to what you were before. And the way I, I remember that I died was because I remember going into a tank of water and being baptized. I didn't understand it back then. I understand it now, and I can vividly see and believe that at that point, that's where I was separated from my old way of life. And I need to declare that in order to maintain it, because that all evil nature can rise from the dead very quickly. Temptation, it can rise up if we yield to temptation. But you see, with water baptism, I can now say to the enemy that's tempting me, the guy that used to do that is dead and buried. Go tempt him. 
this is a new creature in Christ Jesus. I'm God's child. I don't do that. In Exodus 29, he brought the children of Israel out from Egypt through the water, which is referred to in 1 Corinthians 10 as Moses' baptism. He brought them through for one basic reason, so that he could live in us. He lived with Israel. He couldn't live in them because Jesus had died yet to be their supreme sacrifice to cleanse them. But we have that sacrifice in our lives, and he wants to live in us. He won't, doesn't want to live in us if we're still in the old world. If we repent of our sins but keep on living the way we always have, we haven't been separated. If you've been water baptized but you're still living your old lifestyle, you haven't been separated. You say, well, should I be baptized again? Well, why not? In, in Acts 19, Paul found some disciples. These are disciples now, not sinners. And they had been baptized by John, which wasn't complete. It was just a repentance. It didn't have to do with death to self. And Paul baptized them again. No apology to the people that baptized them before. Let's go on to another one, praise. It's right to praise the Lord, and most churches are doing that. They give thanksgiving and praise with their music, their singing. It's been doing that for years and years, and it's good. However, I see some things that bother me, and they're bothering other leaders. I've seen their write-ups in Christian magazines. I've seen their concern, and the whole thing that this, this music group that sits up at the front on the stage they're, they're, they're more interested in performance and they're more interested in drawing attention to how good they are and how well they can sing and how well they can play. And you see, all of a sudden, instead of it, it being something that glorifies Jesus and brings honor to the Father, it's drawing attention to themselves. And that nullifies all the effectiveness of praise because praise will drive the enemy back. He hates us when we praise the Lord. But if he sees selfishness or, or self-promotion in it, whatever he sees that is from the greedy heart, it doesn't drive him anywhere. It's interesting. I read not too long ago a pastor saying, of all the different departments in his church, the one he said the most struggle with is the music people. Why? Because there's an element of pride that comes up if you can play better than somebody else, if you can sing better than somebody else. An element of pride, and that pride has to be dealt with before God can be glorified in our times of praise and thanksgiving. It says the kingdom of God, we're supposed to seek it first, Matthew 5. I guess... Some of these music people are, are, are quite happy that I don't pastor church, therefore I don't really have um, to deal with music departments and music, all that stuff. And, but I think if I was a pastor and I saw that happening in my church, I might do something like this. I'd say, all right, guys, we have a room downstairs. You'll set up all your equipment downstairs in that room, 
and then we're going to pipe everything with um, our wireless equipment that we have nowadays up to the amplifier, and from the amplifier, it will go out there into the speaker. The words will be on the screen, not your pictures, nothing there. As a matter of fact, we're not going to tell the people of the church who's in the music group. We're not going to give you any honor, any, anything that would draw attention to you away from Jesus. And my question then would be, Howard, I wonder how many more, how many people are going to show up next Sunday for the music of this church. You understand, we've done, there's pride that affects the arts, especially music. There's a pride there. So what do we do with them? Instead of helping them humble themselves and giving them a less spectacular place and a less visual place, we put them up on the stage, which is the worst place we could put them. Nevertheless, you got the point. That's point number three. Now point number four. I want to talk about worship. Worship in the church. Worship on Sunday mornings. The worship service. It's the worship team. It's the worship leader. I'll tell you how we worship. We don't. We're not worshiping in the average church or maybe some that have found the truth of this thing, but there's we don't worship. We sing praises. We sing thanksgiving songs, but we're not worshiping. And the reason why is because all the way through from Scripture, from the very beginning right to the very end, worship is never portrayed with singing or music. Thanksgiving is, praise is, but not worship. wasn't too long ago I heard a young youth pastor. I happened to drop into a church that we know, and he was giving a teaching to the youth group on a Wednesday night, and he was teaching on, he said, worship. But every scripture he used was about music, but it was about praising. I discovered this back a number of years ago. I was in India with a, number, a team of men, and the man that was leading it had been at one time a missionary there, and so he would take teams back. And we happened to be just walking along the street. We're actually in Bombay, we call that at that time, going to a church to teach at a Bible school. And he happened to say something that caught me. He said, you know, here in India, there's a saying. He said, the, the Hindus worship many gods, the Muslims worship one God. Christians don't worship any God. And that, that uh, shook me. What's, as a matter of fact, the church we went to is a great big old one that was built years ago when Christianity was honored in that country. And, but the windows were out. The doors were gone. The, they'd even stolen benches out of it. I guess, I don't know why, but it was empty, and yet they held service in there. But I said, why couldn't the neighbors around that church hear them singing? And then one time, a few months later, I came across a little book by Dirk Prince. It's called Thanksgiving and Praise and Worship, and he answered the question. Worship is never expressed in Scripture with music or singing. It might be with spoken words, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. All right, if you don't agree with me, 
just go ahead with the concordance and finally, because praise and worship are different. They have to be, because at least twice with the children of Israel, it says they stood up to praise the Lord and then they bowed down to worship the Lord. I want to talk now about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I was raised in a church and a home that never mentioned this. And when I was first told that I need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit around the age of 30, my, my reaction was, I never heard of that, so therefore it can't be right. And so therefore I dismissed it a bit. But the man who told it to me, I was kind of hung in, chumming around with him. He became a friend of mine. And he, every once in a while he'd bring it back. And so finally he showed me the scriptures. And there's many times it's recorded in the book of Acts. Even the Father called it that in heaven. Jesus calls it that. All the apostles write down because John the Baptist called it that. So I believe it's in pretty good hands. Paul the apostle called it that as well. But the problem is many churches are teaching that when you get saved, you get filled with the Holy Spirit automatically. And there's a few problems with that. And I'm going to, I'm going to um, explain to you what they have because we need to get it clear that if you think you're filled with the Holy Spirit and you have the power of the Holy Spirit in your life but you don't see that power you don't see that evidence you need to reevaluate and go into our website you can find the teaching in there but I want to touch on some things um, about that first thing that we receive it automatically in Acts chapter 8 Starting in verse 14, this is Philip when he was down in Samaria and people started getting healed and delivered, cripples were healed, and then they were baptized, and then they sent back to Jerusalem to get the apostles, Peter and John, to come down and pray for them to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, this has to be at least four days later. They're now baptized and healed. Baptized means they repented and baptized four days later minimum. Here's why, because you go into your search into maps and put in Jerusalem and Samaria and you'll find it's on 53 kilometers, I believe if I remember correctly, and you can't walk 53 kilometers in a few minutes to get two guys to get back here quick. It's going to take at least two days one way, four days round trip, say, well, maybe they rode a camel. I've seen camels that don't travel much faster than people do. Donkeys don't either, unless they're turbocharged or something, as my buddy used to say. And so we have this situation where four days later, minimum, Peter and John come down and prayed for them so they received the Holy Spirit. Another place in Acts chapter 19, Paul was up in Ephesus. He met some disciples. Please note, they were already disciples. And he asked them a question that I'm asking you. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? If Paul believed that everybody got it when they got saved, why did he ask that question? Why would he question them at all? And the reason is because the Holy Spirit is received by faith. And faith comes from being taught that there is 
a baptism of the Holy Spirit. But a lot of us have missed the promise. It's a promise that goes all the way back to Abraham. And that promise is for us. Listen to what Galatians chapter 3, verse 14 says. He, that's Jesus, redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Now, he's, he saved us not just so we won't go to hell. He saved us so we could qualify to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You might say, well, that's for people that are unbelievers. No, it's not. Then if that, Paul asked that question of believers, did you believe? Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Pardon me. And so here Paul to the Galatian people is saying, we were saved so we can receive that gift. It was a blessing promised to Abraham and we can receive it. But we have to realize it's something we ask for. It's something we need to understand. You need to be taught. In the early years of our ministry, we used to pray for people. But months later, we begin to realize that if we set them down and teach them for at least 20 minutes, half an hour, many more would receive it than receive it when we just cold-blinded prayed for people to receive it. Why? Because they now had faith. Faith comes from hearing hearing from the Word of God. The next thing that's missing in the church, point number six, would be discipleship. A number of churches, many churches, assume that when somebody gets saved, that to take that person and just kind of slot them into the main auditorium with everybody else is going to do the job. It does not do the job. No more than if I took my six-year-old child and saying they're supposed to be in grade one, and yet they said, no, no, you have to go up into grade eight because that's all we have. It's the same thing. And so I became more and more aware of this over the years, listening to people talk about their problems and realizing here's someone who's been in an evangelical church for years, still there's empty spaces of understanding because there's no teaching, there's no discipleship that has been given to this person. What did Jesus say about discipleship? He said in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, because, let me stop, because I have this authority and you're under my authority, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. So that's a command of Jesus. How are we to make disciples? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Do you understand there's a responsibility on us? You know what? I don't know how the Father handles this in heaven, but every once in a while you hear somebody say, oh, we had a, we had a wonderful, we had 35 people come to the Lord Jesus Christ. I have asked some of those, so did you disciple them and get them into, into a water tank to baptize them? Did you do that? 
Oh, no, no, we don't have time for that. We just, we're called just to get people saved. No, we're not. We're called to, to preach the gospel, baptize the converts, and disciple them. That's what we're called to do. One guy said, well, that's up to, Jesus can do it. No, Jesus told us to do it, that we disciple. This is one of the biggest holes in the Christian church today is the lack of discipleship program, a lack of teaching for new Christians. And I am not talking about your church doctrine that you go through to make sure they can fit into your, me your membership list. I am talking about the basic doctrines. The one that we've used is simply from Hebrews 6, 1 and 2, and there's six basic doctrines living listed in there. And, and a man named Derek Prince and go into his website and get this book, Foundations for Christian Living. DerekPrince.ca, DerekPrince.org. If you're down in some other country, you'll find them on Google if not now. But you need to realize, men and ladies and leadership, and even those of you who sit across from a cup with a cup of coffee and lead somebody to the Lord, you have a responsibility to baptize them and to disciple them. Make sure they're discipled, if nothing else. What with Philip, the Ethiopian eunuch? The Ethiopian eunuch knew this right away. He preached Jesus to him, Philip did. And then the Ethiopian eunuch says, there's water, I want to be baptized. He already knew it. Philip was doing what Jesus had said to do. The seventh thing, these aren't necessarily in the right order. I don't know what the right order is. Depends on your church, what you're avoiding and what you are not doing. But one of them is deliverance. Casting out demons. That's the way it sounds. And it doesn't turn people on. It turns people off. There's leadership across this country that I live in that won't have anything to do with it. Men who say they're men of God, they lead evangelical, charismatic, Pentecostal churches, but they won't have anything to do with deliverance because it's kind of messy sometimes. It's going to be a lot messier when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ as 2 Corinthians tells us, and you'll be held accountable for not cleaning up the people that God sent into your life to help. He told us we're to cast out demons. He told us that. It's not an option. It's a command. The end of Mark, read it. The end of Mark, cast out demons. Deal with them. And again, the book's and the material we've used is from Derek Prince. I recommend it. It's some of the solidest. We've read a lot of other books, and they may be good, but his stuff is ideal. We actually take videos that he spoke a number of years ago. Who cares? It's still the truth. And we actually use it with a group of people, and then after he's finished, we pray the demons out. It builds up their faith. Hearing comes. Faith comes from hearing. So they hear the Word, first of all. If you're not praying deliverance for your people, you're doing them an injustice. Psalm 79, verse 1, listen to what the psalmist says. Oh God, the nations have invaded, invaded your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have reduced Jerusalem 
to rubble. You say, what's that got to do with that? Listen, we learn from the Old Testament. Jerusalem signified the seat of God, the church in the Old Testament, if I could call it that. And in the New Testament, our churches are invaded by a demonic kingdom that has warped our churches, split our churches, caused division, false accusations to get rid of leaders, whatever it might be, they have invaded us. And they're doing a, a very successful job. I'm going to tell you this at the end of this teaching, how successful they are. I'll give you some figures on it. If you don't believe in deliverance, you'll be held accountable because Jesus said, and it's recorded in the book of Mark, I mentioned this, I'm saying it again for a reason, you are to cast out demons. And the fact that all the apostles are dead or the fact that the scriptures have now been set down in the canon, all that stuff is not anything to do with it. It still lives today. These people need deliverance. I can't go back on that. We have so many testimonies of lives that have been changed. Just last night we sat and listened to my son and his wife who administered deliverance down in another country of the changed lives, the countenance that are changed, the lives that are lo loosened up, and they're totally different people sometimes because the, and the nation that's invaded them and captured them is now gone and they can be the person that God wanted them to be in the first place. The thing that goes along with deliverance, I'll mention it as point number eight, it's curses. We have a teaching that's quite common out there that says all the curses were finished at the cross because after all, it says in Galatians 3.10, all who rely on observing the law are under curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to everything written in the book of the law. And so we know that in the Old Testament, when they committed certain sins, a curse could come into their lives. And if you want to read the curses, Deuteronomy 20.28 20, reveals them to you. But then it says in verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hung on a tree. So Jesus became our curse. Listen, he also took upon us our sins. But we have to repent to qualify for what he did. He took the curse on the cross, the curse of sin. But we have to repent of our sins to qualify to get rid of the curse. And we have experienced over and over again where demons do not come out, they will not come out of a person until the sin that brought that demon in in the first place, the sin that opened the door for it, until that sin is repented of, then the curse is broken and the demon has to come out. I've seen it just like that, they come out once that sin is exposed. It's called a stronghold where you, it, you don't know what the problem is, but then the Holy Spirit, the person that's ministering, can get a word of knowledge, and that opens up that stronghold where you can call that demon out. Now, if you think the curses are all finished, 
I would have to say that you've never read the book of Revelation or the last chapter. Because in the book of Revelation, right, the, the, right near the last chapter, talks about Jesus coming back. Those last three chapters are where he comes back and wins over the world. And then chap the last chapter, 22, verse 3 says, because he's here, there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and the servants will serve him. So when Jesus returns, that's when the curse is going to be finished, flat out everywhere, everybody, and it's too late to repent then. There's also teaching on curses by Dirk Prince. You can also get those. We, we've been doing it. For, listen, we've been delivering people. We started our ministry in, in 1973, December. Six months later, my buddy that started with me, Carl, was praying for a girl, and she started manifesting a demon, a scared I had hair standing on the back of my neck. I knew what it was because I, I remembered my parents reading in the Bible how demons screamed and hollered when Jesus cast them out. I said, I don't know what to do about it. And that's when somebody said to us and we were wondering, Derek Prince has a good audio series, six-hour audio series. I must have listened to those three or four times. Now he has videos out, DVDs, whatever, books on it both curses and deliverance. Please, you need it. You need to deal with it. Give your people in your church a break. Let them be freed from those things that entangle them. You might say, well, people can just say no to the demon. They have to go. That's not right. There's sin that allowed them and has to be dealt with. And often they need somebody with them to work that through. Not always, but often. Another reason, number nine, this is so widespread, I feel I'm speaking to every church that would be listening. It's the five-fold ministry of Ephesians chapter four. Now, I don't care what your doctrine is. I don't care what my doctrine is. I only care about what the word of God says about this. So listen to it. Starting at verse 11 in Ephesians 4, it was he, that's Jesus, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors, and I assume he means some to be teachers. It doesn't really matter. But people call it the fivefold ministry. Verse 12 says what? To prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ could be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. I've got to stop there, and I want you to listen to me. Don't you realize that Jesus is saying something here, and Paul's recording it. Jesus gave these ministries, and Jesus told Paul this. Paul spent three, something like three years with him in the wilderness. And Jesus said, the reason for these five gifts, their offices, they're not the gifts of the Spirit, they're gifts that Jesus gave to these different leaders. They're called the office of, of responsibility for some people. 
But he's saying, I gave them to prepare God's people for works of service. He didn't say, I'm preparing them that can sit in church for the rest of their lives on a Sunday morning. He didn't say they're getting prepared so they could go to conferences for the rest of life, hoping to find some magic key to help them mature and help them grow and become natural evangelism. doesn't say that. He says these five ministries will prepare people so that the body of Christ, going on in verse 12, may be built up. One of the most common complaints among pastors is that why don't my people mature? I preach my heart at every, why don't they grow? Why don't they mature? The answer is right there. I said it's important what it says, not what I think. It's what it says, that the body of Christ could be built up. That, of course, is talking about maturity. And then verse 13, until we all reach unity in faith. Listen, unity is something we don't have across this land. We reach unity in faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. In other words, they teach us about the Son of God. And we become mature. There's that wonderful word. Attaining to the full measure of the fullness of Christ. Listen now. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and of, by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Oh my goodness, verse 14 is a description of the year we're living in. We can turn that around and say, we are not growing up. We are being tossed back and forth by the ways of all different doctrines, blown here and there by every wind of teaching. We end up with about six, seven thousand different denominations and independent churches because then nobody agrees with them, so they're all alone. And the cunning and the craftiness of men and their escapeful scheming has been all this is possible because we have refused to have the five-fold ministry functioning in our congregation. Now, I believe that only one, maybe possibly two, of those ministries are actually part of the congregation. That's the pastor and maybe the teacher. Doesn't really matter. But the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, they roamed through the country roaming through the country, keeping a unity among the churches as they taught in the different churches. That was the intention. And this is what happened. A man named Ramsey McMullen, a professor at Yale University. I don't know whether he's a Christian or not. I hope he is. But this man is a professor of early Roman history. So all around the time of Christ and the new church, early church, he researches and finds Roman history, Roman documents, Roman books or whatever. He finds this stuff, and it's part of his teaching at Yale University. But he said something. He wrote a book called Christianizing the Roman Empire, and he said, I had to record this. It's not just news. I had to record it because it's history. Because the Roman Empire, which is a pagan empire, 
when the, Jesus walked on this earth, it was totally pagan. Within 400 years, it was classed as a Christian nation. And why was it? Because you had apostles and prophets and evangelists roaming through the country, going to cities. He records these little prophets coming into these towns and villages and saying, is there any sick among you? Is there any, anybody having trouble with demonic stuff? Come, to, bring them to me. And when he would finish casting out demons and healing the sick, the whole town would convert to Christianity. That's why by the year 400, including the one who was head over the whole thing in 3012, came to the Lord. Still possible today, you see, but we don't believe in apostles and prophets, many of us. And if, and if you are an apostle, if you call yourself an apostle, you're probably so busy promoting yourself as an apostle, you forget to do the work of an apostle. The reason why churches are floundering is because, it says in Ephesians 2, verse 20, said that the, 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 the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And we've eliminated them from our vocabulary. We've eliminated them from many different um, areas of teaching. And what, what Bible school do you know teaches on how to fulfill the role of a prophet or an apostle? But it says they're the, they're the foundation. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. They're the foundation. The church is to be built on them. Let's go on. Point number 10. There's um, so much concern in the church today about offending someone, and so we're very careful not to offend somebody, and it's mainly because they need to be corrected in something, and yet we're afraid to correct them because of that offense that they take. And if you're offended of something, our government today is very sensitive to people that have been offended. They're not concerned about the truth of what you're trying to do as much as the fact that you offended them. And so the trouble is when we go out of our way and change our, our, our leadership or uh, habits or change our doctrine so not to offend somebody, we can in turn offend the Lord. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 12 and 13. It says we're supposed to bring correction within the church, which is my 11th point. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. And then he said, expel the wicked man from among you. And he quotes that from the Old Testament. So people that that are offended and we hold back, in my 10th point, it means simply that we don't do what the Bible says we're supposed to do. They're supposed to be dealt with. So this takes on very, very serious consequences because we have to know how to bring correction and how to bring the person to understanding. But this is what we did in our ministry many years ago. I ran into this where people were offended because they had to be dealt with. I'm not saying I did it the best way. Who knows what the best way is? But I take responsibility if I did 
do it the wrong way. But this is what we begin to do. I went through, reading through the book of Proverbs, I noticed something. There's quite a few verses that talk about the need for correction and how we're supposed to receive correction. And so I had them printed out. And it was about a full page, number 10 print, of all these verses. And before somebody joined our ministry, I would explain to them that we're a ministry that because of the sensitivity, we had to have righteousness in our midst. If we don't, the demons won't obey us. Our teaching will be flat and dull. There will be no anointing. And so we we begin to say to these people, you have to understand if we need to bring correction, we will have to do it. And I would give them this list from Proverbs, but also there's quite a bit in other books of the Bible where it talks about the need to receive discipline and correction, and I would give it to them. And after that time, we had no trouble with people that came into our ministry because they understood our foundation was that we needed to correct something that wasn't right. If you are correcting someone, and this is true in the business world, I spent some years there, first of all, after school. Well, I found out I was in a, a leadership role that where I had to hire people and sometimes fire people. And we, we were part of a large company, and an international company, so they had good training, and this is what they taught me. If a person is violating laws of the company, we would make a record of it, keep a record of it. And if there's somebody else there with us as a witness, we would keep their name there, that they were a witness. And after a number of, of, of I call them rebellions or whatever, but things that were um, in error, eventually would sit down with that person and we talked to them about it, what we had to do, if we had to dismiss them or if we had to bring some kind of correction, we would work at it. And so in the business world, I learned that if you keep track of things, and if they take you to court afterwards, you can say to the judge, well, here are incidents with witnesses of what this person did. And our reason for dismissing this person is because of things like this happening. And the courts would honor as far as I know, some of that stuff they did with us in our, or our business. Now, if you're a member of a church, member of a ministry, and you don't like taking correction, and people are afraid to say something to you because you're going to blow up or you're going to get out of joint for a while, carry a chip in your shoulder, listen, this, I'm going to read this one from Proverbs for you. This is for you. Number 12, members who cannot receive correction, Proverbs 5, 11 to 14. At the end of your life, you will groan when your flesh and body are spent. You will say, how I hated discipline, how my heart spurned correction. I will not obey my leaders or listen to my instructions. I have come to the brink of utter ruin in the midst of the whole assembly. So when he says in verse 10, I would not obey my teachers. If finally they're waking up, that's what I did. And my life is ruined because I wouldn't accept correction. Now in the stuff I found in Proverbs, 
You know, it says things, if you don't receive correction, you're a fool. It talks about ending up in disaster in many places. Read through the book of Proverbs. Write down every verse that has to do with receiving correction if you're having trouble. Let's go on. Number 13. We have trouble in our churches today because people are not willing to serve. Somebody that does analyzing, number crunching, I guess, they say that 10% of the people in the church do 90% of the volunteer work, and I believe that. You see, Jesus didn't come to be served. He came to serve us, and we're to be like him. If we're not willing to serve, how can I say I'm Christ-like? How can I say I'm following Jesus? Because he set the example for me. If you're not willing to serve, you need to find out from the Lord why you're not willing to serve. If there's so much pride there that you think to yourself, I'm more important than that person, therefore they can do it, or I'm, I don't have to empty that garbage can, there's somebody less important than me, and if I throw my garbage on the, on the sidewalk in front of a building and I don't have to pick it up because somebody else is less important than I am, they need to pick it up, you get a pride problem. And God is opposed to the proud. Don't be surprised if your life takes a wrong turn somewhere and you end up in disaster. It's nothing but pride. Paul was trying to deal with that. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Romans 12, prefer others above yourselves. Treat others better than yourselves, the Bible teaches. Serve one another. Never says lord it over them. Jesus said that's what the Gentiles do. They lord it over you, the sinners. Don't do that way. Be servants. We need to be servants in order to fulfill the second commandment. We're to love our brothers and love our neighbors. Romans 12 helps us understand that. There's a number of other places where it helps understand that command that Jesus gave, that we're willing to serve. You can't serve everybody, but we certainly can serve those who pe the people God has put into our lives that need us. I have one more, number 14. It's called copying the world. 2 Kings 16. There's a story of King Asa. He was Hezekiah's father. Hezekiah turned out to be a good king, but this guy did not. And he changed the sacred things of the temple to insert a heathen altar like the one he saw in Damascus. They were up there. They defeated their enemy in Damascus. He saw this altar and made a description. I'll come back and told the high priest to build one like that. Now, after he had done this, you, end, you realize that the, the organized temple at that time had to be very precise. Jesus said to Moses, see to it that you do everything exactly, when he was setting up the temple, exactly as I have said. But this guy came along, first of all, the altar. That represents getting rid of repentance because the true altar dealt with the sins, covered the sins. So he dealt, got rid of repentance. 
But then he started changing other things. And after he'd changed a number of things, it looked more like a heathen temple than it would a godly temple. Now listen, we have done so much of that. I am not saying that if your church decided to have strobe lighting or smoke coming up or, or backgrounds that are all video and lots of music, I'm not saying it's a sin. But I am asking you, did the Lord tell you to do it that way or are you copying the world because they're so successful in their concerts and their performances with all this stuff, say, we're going to do that too. Are we copying the world like this king copied the altar from Damascus? So I'm not saying it's wrong. I am saying we need to be led by the Spirit in everything in our, in our times of, of thanksgiving and praise and worship and Sunday mornings. We need to have everything the way God wants it in there, not the way... The world does. It bothers me. I confess. You might say, well, Howard, that's because you're old. Maybe so. But I remember when there's a, in a church that I grew up in, nothing was copied from the world. Everything that we had, the altar at the front, there was, nothing was copied from the world. And I remember the Spirit of God moving in that church at different meetings at different times. We didn't have to copy the world to bring the Spirit of God in. He came because people cried out to him and wanted him in their presence. That's getting less and less now. Some of these, some of these churches, they'd put on this grand, spectacular performance at the front, and we're so deceived, we go home saying, oh, wasn't that a beautiful presence? It wasn't the presence the Lord has called many times. I've been there where my... My back started crawling because I felt something was out of order. Something is not right. Jesus is not being glorified. It's, it's the church putting on this show that's being glorified and the people on the stage that are being glorified and the light keeper and the, uh, the, the audio driver, all that stuff that's going on. They're not wrong if the Lord has ordered them. But if you're copying the world, what a slap against the face of God when he wants your Holy Spirit to be leading you and guiding you in that place. There's a guy in England, a, a, a pastor in his Angeles years ago. His name was C.H. Spurgeon. Listen to what he said. He prophesied this, and it's happening. His prophecy is true. He said, a time will come when instead of shepherds feeding the sheep, the church will have clowns entertaining the goats. Oh, Lord, deliver us from that. I've said enough. There may be more things that we need to change if you read your Bible on a regular basis, especially New Testament. As you read it over and over, God's going to start showing you things that can bring us back into order. You see, I just heard the other day of a, of a mission um, somewhere that, and their focus for a time of prayer is that, that churches would stop closing. Listen, maybe it isn't Satan that's closing them. Maybe it's because we've forgotten about the Lord 
and we're doing everything our own way. Things that we think were popular, things that we think will bring people in. And I'm not denying, I know they do bring people in. That doesn't mean they're right. May not mean they're wrong, but it doesn't mean they're right. So what have we produced by ignoring, skipping out? The divorce rates in the evangelical church, 25% of marriages now are ending in divorce. That's terrible. It's not as bad as the world out there, but it's terrible. Because marriage is a special thing in the eyes of God. And if we are following the Lord Jesus Christ and being taught properly, being nurtured in the Word, I don't believe divorce should happen. Selfishness is the main thing. I want things my way, and I'm not being noticed. All those things are the old flesh. It should be dead. It should be buried. The second thing that's happening in church, we're losing 76% of our young people at the end of high school as they're going to college. As I've said this a number of times, I was in the business world for 10 years. Believe me, I was in a lower level of management. I know this. If things were going wrong in the company, if we lost 76% of our business in the year, I'll tell you, there'd be board meetings, there'd be heads rolling, there would be, and we'd sit up all night trying to find what's wrong here. The church just says, oh, we shouldn't speak negatively, and they don't do much about it. Some of you might change your programs a bit. But you see, a definition of stupidity I've read is when we keep doing the same things over and over again but expecting different results. doesn't happen. Number three, Bible colleges are experiencing a decline in enrollment at their schools. And I asked a man that was the head of Evangelical Fellowship of Canada for a period of time. I said, why is that? And he said, because which is my fourth point, 51% of church members in the last 10 years have been dropped from the evangelical church here in Canada. We're half the size. This is about two years ago he told me this. So 12 years ago, we're about half the size evangelical-wise as we was back then. In 2 Kings 10, Jehu was a man that God used to clean up the whole Jezebel thing and stuff that was going on in Israel. But then he turned away from the Lord. Do you know what his reaction was? He said, God began to reduce the size of Israel. The size of the church is being reduced in our day and age because we're doing something outside of his pattern, of his way. We are. I'm just telling you what the Bible's saying. It was God who reduced the size of Israel. First Kings, this is why the temple was destroyed. Let me say it this way. Today there's churches being closed. All over the place there's churches being closed. You might say yes, but we're having these, these big mega churches now. Listen, there's less family atmosphere in those big mega churches than there is at Walmart. Because you never get to see the same person twice. I'm not against them as much as I'm saying it's really not working 
what can we do to make it work? Let's read 1 Kings 9, starting at verse 6. This is why the temple was destroyed. But if you or your sons turn away from me and do not observe the commands, did you notice that? Observe the things that Jesus laid down for the church, the things that Paul talks about. Observe the commands and decrees I have given you and go off and serve other gods and worship them. In other words, he's saying, if you have something that's more important in your fellowship than the, hearing the voice of God, that's like another God, then I will cut off Israel. Let me rephrase verse 7. I will close the churches that don't honor me, and I'll reject them from the land I've given them. I will reject this temple, he says in verse 7. I have consecrated for my name. In other words, even though the temple had God's name on it, he still rejected it. Israel will become a byword and an object of ridicule among all the peoples. I stop there again. Listen, the church today is at the lowest level of respect in the, in the, in the normal, everyday life person out there. We're at the lowest level. It's happening again. Happened in Israel. It's happening again. We're an object of ridicule. We're, we're a byword, a joke. Verse 8, and, through, and though this temple is now imposing, all who pass by will be appalled and will scoff and say, why has the Lord done such a thing? Notice, why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this temple? They were saying that when it was destroyed. And the people will answer, because they have forsaken the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of Egypt, and have embraced other gods, worshiping and serving them. That is why the Lord brought all this disaster on them. Have you got the picture? We can't blame the enemy. We can't blame public opinion. We can't blame lack of interest. We have to start standing up and saying, I am to blame as a leader. I receive responsibility for where the church is today, and I commit myself to doing something about it. Jeremiah 7, 23, I gave them this command. Obey me, and I will be your God, and you'll be my people. Walk in all the ways I command you. Listen, that it may go well with you. Listen, I've been part of the church all my life. It is not going well with us. You might have a church that's flourishing and new people coming in and vibrant, but the, look at the whole community. Look at the country. We're, look at We're not doing well as a church. Don't hide behind your little desk in your little office with the door closed and not want to look at the rest of what's happening. I might close by saying this. What is the Lord looking for in a church? What's he want? First of all, in Ephesians 3, verse 10, chapter 3, verse 10, this is his intent. Listen, I love it. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. That was our mandate. Make God look good to the sinners out there that they would want to come 
and be part of his kingdom. That was our job. We failed him. Our churches are sinking. We're only half as big as we were 12 years ago. And there's a reason for our serving God. God's looking for servants in his church. I've touched on this, but listen to what he says in Psalm 67, verse 2. He says, that your ways may be known on the earth, your salvation among all the nations. So our serving says to the world, we serve a God who gives us ability to be servant. We don't dwell in pride. We don't dwell in I'm better than you are. My colors makes me better than you. Or my religion makes you better. No, we're there to serve. He wants us to be servants so we'll see him as a God of us, as being a servant. We do it for his namesake. He restored us for his namesake. Listen to Ezekiel 36, verse 22. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name. He says that in Psalm 76. I brought them out of Egypt, not because they deserved it, but for the sake of my name. See, God wants the church to be a church that says to the world, we serve a better God than any other God. Would you love to come for lunch today? He's looking for a church that has priests. I'm not talking about just the Catholic church here or some of the mainline church. I'm talking about every individual who's a child of God. It says you have made, you, Jesus, have made them to be a kingdom and priests. In other words, if you're living for Jesus, not living for self, even though you've been saved, you can still live for self, but you're living for Jesus, you're part of his kingdom, but you're also priests to serve him to other people, but also to serve him in thanksgiving, praise, and in worship. And they, talking of us, will reign on the earth. We're not reigning, are we? We've lost control. We're losing most things. He look, What's something else God's looking? He's looking for invisible leaders. Listen, we need as leaders to ask ourselves, why is it that when Jesus performed miracles, he would say, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. When, when the disciples saw him in a trance, Mountain Transfiguration. What a book that would make. Moses or Ezekiel or Jesus. Oh, what will I call my book? Listen, Jesus said, don't tell anybody. And if you want to take it farther, in the book of Matthew, who is the apostle, and the book of John, who is the other apostle that wrote two of the four epistles, they don't use I or me. Matthew says, and he appointed another disciple named Matthew. Why didn't he say he appointed me? Because he didn't want to draw attention to himself away from Jesus. Why does John, all the way through his gospel of John, instead of talking about me, I, he says, and there's a certain disciple and another disciple, the one that outran Peter to the church. That's why they don't want to draw attention away from Jesus' leaders. We need to come to a place where we do everything to be unseen, invisible, so that Jesus can be glorified. He wants people that are dead to self. He wants people that come into the church with an unselfish motive. No more 
going to church to get what I want. I'm going to church to see what I can give to that fellowship. I'm going to church to see how I can help the leadership or whatever. I need to help. Most of us think we help by giving an offering. The Lord requires much more than that. He's looking for mature leaders, leaders that will be in the Word of God every day, not just so they have a new sermon to preach, but so that they'll be mature in the Word of God. A people, he's looking for us folks, a people who will read the Word of God, put it into practice, and then teach it like Ezra did. He learned the law, he practiced the law, and then he did the law. We don't have to be fed any longer after a while. Instead of the leaders of the church feeding us for the rest of our life Sunday morning, we can start feeding some others. So, Father, please do something with this teaching, Lord God. I cry out to you to dig it into the hearts of people so people's lives will start to be changed because of what they've heard in this three-part message. Oh, Lord, we thank you. You're not going to quit on us. You're a great and faithful God. And we will see, by faith, the church raised up to be glorious again. In the name of Jesus, we thank you. Amen. Please visit our website at jwmi.ca to find out about more information of our ministry.